This is On the Line, Keystone in Nebraska, a podcast from NET News about the issues surrounding the Keystone XL oil pipeline as the State Public Service Commission prepares to make its final decision on whether to approve a route for the pipeline in Nebraska. That's basically the last major hurdle for KXL if TransCanada decides to build it. We'll talk more about that later. I'm Grant Gerlach, a reporter for NET News. If you don't know NET News, we're the NPR and PBS member station in Nebraska. And I'm here with... Ariana Brocious. Bill Kelly. Fred Knapp. Ben Bohal. My fellow reporters at NET News. And so what we're going to do is we'll all be talking about this hearing coming up and what it's all about. And then some of the issues that we've each been reporting on lately that are likely to come up in the hearing as well. So we're recording this on Thursday, August 3rd. On Monday, August 7th, the Nebraska Public Service Commission begins a five-day hearing about Keystone XL. Um, But even that word hearing hardly captures it because it's almost going to be like a trial. Uh, Bill? Well, it is almost like going to court. They call it a quasi-judicial proceeding. And uh, there will be a presiding judge. Um, Ordinarily, there might be a member of the Public Service Commission staff who is the presiding officer. They've actually brought in a a retired judge, Judge Karen Flowers, who uh, worked in uh, Lancaster District Court for uh, 17 years. He's got a 40 years worth of legal background. And that's, that's important because it will... Uh, it gives a more certainty that the proceedings will be considered uh, fair, that there's not a member of staff on it. Okay, so it's supposed to, the judge is supposed to help make the proceedings impartial. Exactly, yeah. And uh, there there will be evidence presented on both sides. It's like a trial and that there's a, a... uh, a plaintiff and and a, and a defendant. Uh, so we're talking attorneys, attorneys, evidence, witnesses, witnesses, the whole nine yards, and uh, and that that gives an opportunity for also for everybody to get a whole bunch of stuff on the record, since there will almost certainly be a a judicial appeal appeal in the in the regular course after. So that saves a huge legal step farther down the road. And that's a big difference from the public hearings they've been holding over the last few months where they've gone to York and O'Neill. And exactly. Yeah, this is not something where people can just show up and, and say their piece. That part has been concluded. This is the part to put actual evidence on the public record. Uh, so, uh, Fred or, or Bill, uh, who is going to be there? TransCanada will be there. Who else is going to be represented at the hearing? People who own land along the route, people who are directly impacted, uh, who uh, object to TransCanada's use of uh, or prospective use of eminent domain to obtain an easement through their property for the pipeline, uh, labor people who support the pipeline as a source of jobs. Um, uh, the various uh, protest groups have been given access. Uh, so I think there'll be a broad range of people on both sides. But even then, it's it's people who are kind of handpicked by each set of attorneys to offer testimony. Uh, and it's not like walking off the street and, and, and have your say. And the PSC had to approve everyone who was sort of considered an official what they call it, intervener? An intervener in and, and interested party, yeah. So TransCanada will be there. What did they say about how this was all going to happen? Uh, last week I spoke with uh, Matthew John, who is one of the spokespeople for TransCanada, and and he pointed out that there's going to be a fair amount of, of dry testimony during the, the, this process. 
It's going to be incredibly technical. If you're interested in the, uh, in the technical uh, machinations of a pipeline, how it's constructed, um, the, safety, um, the safety measures that, that we are going to, to take to ensure this um, pipeline is, is safe, and as well as the, the economic benefits, they will be discussed um, you know, throughout the first part of the hearing. So they're going to be talking how it's going to be built, how it's going to be operated, and literally technical specifications. A lot of engineering reports, um, both having to do with how the pipeline's put together, uh, the technical specifications of the route, and uh, the material being included in the pipeline. Well, so let's talk about some of the um, issues that could come up in the arguments. Uh, ben Bohall, you've been looking into uh, some of the impacts Keystone XL could have when it comes to jobs and the economy. And a common charge by opponents of the pipeline has been that TransCanada often inflates the job numbers that the project would create. So what's going on when you when you look at the job numbers associated with the pipeline? Well, it, really, it's hard to nail down. With the economists that I spoke with, they said many times with these projections, those numbers are, are typically off anyway. Um, if you want to hang your hat on anything with this, probably your best bet is uh, the federal government commissioned a study called the Final Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement. Rolls right off the tongue. Yeah. Um, and what that projected was 42,100 jobs overall. Now, 16,100 of those would be direct. So we're talking construction, manufacturing, uh, 26,000 indirect. Uh, these are positions that provide you know, goods and services to, uh, you know, to construction workers. What's probably the most interesting out of this is that this study uh, estimates 35 permanent jobs when all this is said and done, uh, 15 temporary contractors. So that kind of gives us an idea. Okay, so around 16,000 people building the pipeline, and that helps support more jobs, the hotels, the restaurants. Right, all those so indirect sort of positions. That but are in the end, we... after the year or so when it's built, 35 jobs on the ground with the pipe operating. That's correct, according to the estimates of this study. Um, so obviously the opponents of the pipeline have said, well, that's not that many. Um, but the people who build pipelines have been at a couple of the hearings, um, and they have a different perspective. I guess if you build pipelines, you need pipelines to be built. Yeah, and it's important to, to understand that for many of these pipeline workers, you know, traveling from project to project is, is just part of the job. For many of them, that's the appeal. You go to, you know, some of these temporary, you know, projects, these construction projects that are happening, and then you move on to the next one when it's complete. And it's interesting because so much of this argument has been, you know, what's temporary and what's permanent. But for them, all that really matters is this temporary job where you, you go in, you make your money, and you also get to practice this skill. Well, let's hear from Chad Gilbert. He was a pipeliner from Colorado, and he spoke at the public hearing um, in York back in May. We are very proud of what we have created over the years. Pipeliner 798 trains excellent craftsmen and women and helps families feel secure in our industry. I say this to make the point that the jobs that will be created by the Keystone XL are real jobs for real people. Real jobs for real people, he says. Absolutely. And it's worth mentioning that with a lot of these projects, uh, the reason why so many unions are pushing for it is this money kind of goes back into the union, where they make the argument that, you know, we have this money, it sustains us for a while, it allows us to have apprenticeship programs where we can train these workers to um, work on other projects, maybe you're, uh, if you're a welder or, you know, working construction sites in general. Bill and Ariana, you've been looking at some of the potential um, impacts if there is a spill from Keystone XL. 
Uh, and a lot of this starts with a discussion about what's actually going through the pipe and how it's different from the typical crude oil, Ariana. Yeah, so there's crude oil. We know a lot about crude oil because that's mostly what we ship through pipelines when we talk about oil pipelines. Um, this material is bitumen, bitumen, what bitumen. What do we call it? We tried to decide what to call it. <laughs> there are a lot of different Tar sands ways. oil, bitumen, bitumen. Uh, but Take your pick. regardless of how you pronounce it, it's essentially a very heavy kind of petroleum product. Um, I read somewhere that it was described as kind of a peanut butter consistency, so you can kind of think of that. So to get it through the pipeline, they have to add other dilutants to it, which makes it into this product called diluted bitumen. And so uh, a lot of the concern that we've heard from landowners and, and opponents has to do with the chemicals that are added um, benzene, xylene, things like that, which make it lighter and easier to move, but can, um, if spilled, more quickly get into the groundwater and, and result in some contamination. Part of what's what's interesting is there isn't a lot known about the properties of, of dilbit, diluted bitumen, if it actually spills. There's only been one major spill that was... Uh, uh, seven years ago in uh, uh, Kalamazoo River in uh, southwestern Michigan. What they did find with the Kalamazoo River spill that was uh, kind of alarming for state environmental, Michigan state environmental officials and, and the Environmental Protection Agency is although it initially appeared like a regular oil spill because the light crude that they mix in with it all floated to the surface, the, this heavier crude, this, this tar sands oil, ended up sinking much lower into the river and actually settling into the river bottom, and they actually needed to dredge it out rather than skim it off the surface like you ordinarily do with, a, uh, with an oil spill. And uh, so there's still a, a big portion of what I'm going to be interested to hear is, okay, what will an organization like TransCanada do to work with state environmental officials, emergency management officials at the county and local level as well to have a plan to say, okay, well, how do you address this spill in this specific location? How would that be different, Ariana, if it spilled in just in the middle of a field instead of in a river? So like Bill said, there isn't really a lot known about this particular kind of petroleum um, there has been some research. I mean, if it spills on the surface, what would most likely happen is that those lighter things would evaporate. They can be very damaging and, and harmful to first responders if they aren't protected. So that's something that they need to be prepared for. But the heavier stuff would probably just stay in place unless it's excavated because um, it is so heavy. Underground, I talked to a number of different hydrogeologists, and they were all kind of of the same mind that no one's really exactly sure, but probably um, that lighter stuff would migrate into the groundwater more easily. And again, that heavier comp compounds would really stay in place. So if they can't get to it and excavate it out, um, it might just sit there. And there are some landowners who have been paying attention to this and are concerned. A couple that we talked to for, for one of our stories, Byron Stuskel um, and Calvin Dobiash up in, in Holt County, um, expressed some of their concerns. It's not the whole thing we're against. I guess the tar sands oil is what we're more against than crude oil or other oils because of the materials that are in the oil to get it to go through the pipes. We're talking about tar sands, carcinogenics, benzene, xylene, and all these other cancer-causing agents. 
So I think the main takeaways in terms of groundwater contamination, which is a big concern that's been raised around the pipeline, is that if there's a spill underground, most likely it would only impact a very small part of the aquifer. Obviously, uh, the aquifer is not an underground lake as it's sometimes described. It's a whole bunch of different layers of sand and water and sediment. So things aren't going to move through it as quickly as some people might be worried about. However, if there's a leak that it goes undetected for a long time, that material could more, more easily migrate if it's not cleaned up. So really what will happen in the event of a spill is very much going to be determined by the conditions of the spill, how much, when it occurs, where it occurs, what the local ground conditions are. Uh, and for landowners like we just heard, um, Calvin Doviash, uh, they're in that part of the state where it's very sandy soil and people have been worried about erosion up in Holt and Antelope counties. And that's something you've looked into, Grant. I yeah. mean, can you tell us a little bit about um, this sort of argument or disagreement about where the sandhills end and what they are and how that matters? The strict definition of the sandhills is wind-blown sand dunes. And according to geologists who study this pretty closely, the areas where this pipeline is aren't wind-blown sand dunes, but they are still really sandy soil. There isn't a whole lot of difference between the soil in the sandhills and the soil just beyond the sandhills that's not windblown. And I'm, I'm curious if the Public Service Commission has decided whether what, what the boundary of the sandhills are as a matter of fact, if, if we're going into this hearing saying that the PSC agrees, yeah. here's where that boundary is. Have, uh, and there's a lot of agreement about where the boundary is. I think the question is how meaningful that is and whether that's even the the boundary to be talking about. Will that be a matter in dispute, or is that something like from the get-go that the that the commission says, okay, here's here's where the protected and the and the sandhills designation is specific. There are more as an environmental matter besides the sandhills. There were maps in the the State Department environmental impact statement and others that showed um, areas where the the soil is highly erodible, and that's a different map, and it goes beyond the border of the the sandhills per se. And, um, and those reports showed that there would be 48 miles out of the 275 through the state that are considered highly erodible soils. Mm -hmm. um, well, that brings us to some of the arguments that we do expect the different sides to make. Um, so we've got TransCanada and their attorneys. Bill, how are they planning to try to sell this uh, route to the Public Service Commission? Most, I think most people that are probably listening to this have an interest in this know what the what the absolute basic arguments are and that is it's going to be a uh, a safe pipeline it's going to it it has a, a an important purpose in the national economy uh, that they if there is an incident that they will address that then they have plans in place what will be interesting is filling in all those broad statements that they've made with some very specific Points. Well, yeah, for instance, in terms of serving the economy, some of the reports leading up to this meeting are that TransCanada doesn't have customers yet. Right. Dave Domina is the lawyer for the uh, landowners who are opposed to the project, and uh, they're going to try to make this argument that uh, the economic uh, rationale is not there, and uh, therefore it's not in the public interest. So uh, that leads right into their, their argument then, that this pipeline isn't needed, it shouldn't be built. Right. And their fallback argument is if it is built, they want a series of the PSC to impose a series of conditions on the easements, like uh, having them be for the life of the pipeline rather than in perpetuity, as they are now, um, 
Could, could force you explain the difference of that, Fred? Well, the pipeline is expected to last like 50 years. And so uh, they, they say the easement should only last for 50 years rather than be forever. Um, then another thing they want is for TransCanada to assume strict liability for, for leaks. So TransCanada couldn't say, well, you ran over it with your combine, therefore you're responsible. Um, and they want them to uh, be forced to remove the pipe after it's no longer being used, which is not apparently guaranteed right now. I want to mention one other thing. A lot of the uh, discussion uh, both uh, that we've had and that has been brought up in the public hearings concerns the safety of the pipeline and uh, what happens in the event of a leak. But the legislation that created this process uh, the passed by the Nebraska legislature specifically says that nothing in the major oil pipeline siting act shall be construed to regulate any safety issue with respect to any aspect of any interstate oil pipeline and that the commission shall not evaluate safety considerations including the risk or impact of spills or leaks from a major oil pipeline. They say that that is preempted by the federal government. Now, that hasn't stopped people at all of these public hearings from testifying, and I expect that we'll hear more of it in this proceeding to come. But theoretically, what the Public Service Commission is doing is simply judging whether or not uh, the pipeline's in the public interest. But does, do they get any direction on how to, to define that? Well, they do. Um, they should consider... Uh, whether the pipeline carrier has demonstrated compliance with all applicable state statutes, blah, blah, blah. Uh, evidence of the impact due to intrusion upon natural resources. In other words, if you're building a pipeline and you're hauling in all these pipes with uh, 16 wheelers over the sand hills, uh, you rip up the land and it doesn't get restored for 50 years. So impacts of the construction activity itself. Evidence regarding the economic and social impacts of a major oil pipeline. Well, that's, that opens the door, although I don't know to what extent. It opens the door for discussion of, well, you don't have contracts or, well, this is a secure supply of oil as opposed to Venezuela, which also supplies heavy crude to the same refineries on the Texas Gulf Coast and which is the subject of consideration right now for possible additional sanctions because of Maduro's moves towards dictatorship. The government there. Yeah. One other consideration that the Public Service Commission is directed by law to take into account is whether any other utility corridor exists that could feasibly and beneficially be used for the route of the major oil pipeline. That is to say... The first Keystone route. Right. So, okay, a lot of things for the Public Service Commission to hear about, a lot of arguments to be put forward, and uh, that leaves a lot of work... Uh, for us to do <laughs> next week <laughs> as we listen into all this. So that's what we have to look forward to. And NET News will be there at the hearing on Monday. Uh, Bill, you're on deck for Monday? I am on deck for Monday. And even before the hearing starts on Monday, there are gonna be, uh, there's going to be a march uh, by pipeline opponents Sunday afternoon. Uh, uh, the group uh, Bold Alliance, Sierra Club, 350.org, mainstream organizations like that. Group that are, have been fighting it for years and years and years. Right. And uh, they're going to march uh, from uh, the Capitol uh, to the Cornhusker Hotel where the uh, hearings are going to be held starting at 3 p.m. 
And there's also a uh, call out for an anti-colonial, anti-capitalist, and anti-fascist What's law. that now? <laughs> that, that, this is uh, the people who show up in masks and uh, oh. take uh, sometimes take direct action. Uh, and uh, there's been some unrest in other cities uh, around the country um, surrounding this activity. So the Lincoln police are preparing for that, and the state patrol will be providing security at the, during the hearings themselves. Uh, and we'll be back here to explain what went on on Sunday and Monday on this podcast on the line, Keystone in Nebraska. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast service, iTunes or what have you, so you don't miss any of these episodes. And you can look for our next episode on Monday evening, August 7th. And we'll detail the day's events there and each day after that through the 11th. And you can also go to netnebraska.org slash keystone to catch up on pipeline coverage of those protests and other things happening through the week of the hearing. And that's all at netnebraska.org slash keystone from NET News. Thanks for listening. <laughs>